Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. This is our special weekly segment with host Peter Kafka, Recode's senior editor and producer of the Code Media Conference. Kara, I got to confess, I'm feeling a little itchy. I think I want another title. I want to have my own podcast. Can you fix that for me? I think you have enough titles. More. I need more. No, you know, I'll think about it. I'll I'll think about that, but I feel like you have enough titles. I want my own show with my own name, and these are non-negotiable demands. They're (laughs) kind of negotiable. All right, we'll see what we can do about that. But I will send you some lovely flowers in the interim. Deal. Joining Peter each week are some of his favorite movers and shakers in the media world. Peter, this week you talked to Andrew Jarecki, who directed HBO's The Jinx. All these crime documentaries are going around. Tell us about that. The Jinx is great. The Jinx was Making a Murderer Before Making a Murderer. It's the HBO show about uh, the Durst family and one Durst in particular who very likely killed at least three people. Right. That's a great story. Andrew's also made a bunch of other documentaries. That's interesting. He's also got a video making app. That's interesting. And as you'll probably recall... And a former AOL executive, right? Exactly. You used to cover AOL back in the day. Yeah. And he made his first money selling movie phones. Movie phones, It's yes. a great flashback. I think it will astonish some of the people in the room with you right now to realize you have to open up the newspaper to find out when a movie was in the olden, olden days. Oh, that, yeah. I still do that sometimes, Peter. Forward, into the future. <laughs> okay. All right, well, I'm looking forward to it. You should. It's good. I'm here with Andrew Jarecki, who has a long and illustrious resume. You've made documentaries. You, you built an, a web company that sold for real money. You've got an app, which we're going to talk about. I think most folks know you, though, probably today, because you are the guy behind, or one of the guys behind the Jinx, the very successful HBO true crime documentary that aired, what, a year ago, right? Uh, Yeah, aired, I guess, in March. And I don't know whether it's just because HBO Go is featuring it a lot and or because there's making a murder of the Netflix true crime documentary, but it seems like there's almost a renewed conversation about the show you came out with a year ago. You sound right to you? Yeah, there's also a little bit of news always about Bob Durst just because he likes it that way. And uh, the most recent thing is that he was arrested in New Orleans around the time, well, the day of the sixth episode of The Jinx. And and, and since that time, he's had a, a lot of back and forth about whether he's going to go to Los Angeles for trial for murder right. or not. And I just learned something. Should I tell you something I just learned about Yeah, can, Bob can we, we should tell the, the handful of listeners who don't know who Bob Durst is and what, and what you spent a couple of years doing with him. Uh, he's accused of and very likely guilty of killing at least three people. Yeah, so Bob Durst is the scion of the Durst family fortune here in New York City. Big real That's estate a family. Massive real estate fortune that uh, encompasses, among other things, the the Freedom Tower and the Bank of America Tower, and um, so he's from this remarkably wealthy and and influential family, and became infamous because over the course of the last thirty years, three people who are close to him have been uh, murdered in some way. His wife was the first in 1982 she disappeared and it was generally thought that he might have had something to do with her disappearance but there was nothing much to be done about it because there was no body and so that kind of uh, just went along without any uh, resolution until about 18 years later when the Westchester County District Attorney decided to reopen the case and identified a new witness this woman Susan Berman in Los Angeles and they decided that she was the person who probably knew more than anything else about the disappearance of his wife. And just before the police go talk to her, she's found murdered in Los Angeles. So the, the murder renews in, in 2000. And then, again, they don't go after Bob Durst for various reasons. 
And seven months later, a body washes up in Galveston, Texas, and it's the dismembered corpse of a drifter living in Galveston. And they discover that the drifter had a relationship with Robert Durst, who was at the time living in Galveston, uh, disguised as a mute woman. And so you make this remarkable documentary, which I want to talk about, which culminates with this this remarkable, basically, confession, semi-confession that he's making in, yep. in the bathroom after you've interviewed him. It's, yep. and, and right before that episode airs, the police announce they've arrested him. He's been in custody since. And so now you're going to catch us up on what's actually happening in that trial, in that prosecution. Yeah, well, the one thing I learned recently that was remarkable is how he was arrested. So after Bob Durst watched the first five episodes of my series, he was in New Orleans and had contacted a friend of his to say, I'm here in New Orleans, I'm checked into a hotel under an assumed name, and I am going to see how bad episode six is. And depending on how uh, that works out, I'm going to decide whether or not I'm going to go to Cuba. So Cuba, which doesn't have an extradition treaty with the United States, uh, would be a good place for you to go if you're a triple homicide suspect and you think you might be arrested by the FBI, which was what was likely going to happen to him. And so I recently found out, because I wasn't there at the time, that the FBI, who had seen episode six before Bob saw episode six and was aware um, that it would likely lead to him trying to fly the coop, went to New Orleans and started checking around in various hotels and finally got to the, the 10th hotel that they had looked at, which was the Marriott Courtyard. And they asked the desk clerk if they knew whether there was a, a Bob Durst there, and they gave about 11 or 12 other aliases that Bob had, had used, Diane Wynn and Dorothy Siner, often posing as a woman. And the desk clerk said, sorry, we have nobody like that here. The FBI turned around and in walks Bob Durst off the street, and they stand together in the lobby for a minute, and they say, are you Robert Durst? And he, <laughs> in classic Bob style, doesn't want to answer. He's, he thinks maybe he'll get away with not being Bob Durst. And at that moment, a viewer, a woman in the lobby, walks over, ignoring the FBI G-men, and she turns to Bob Durst, and she says, oh, I'm sorry, I, I hate to interrupt, but I'm a big fan, and I've been watching the show. And, you know, maybe I can have an autograph. And so it was sort of, um, at that point, it was clear that he was, in fact, So, so your show not only gave the authorities the impetus to go arrest him, it actually literally helped secure the arrest, I yeah, guess. I, I, I guess. So much I want to talk to you about. But, sure. but you were, I mean, this was happening in real time, right? You knew what you were putting up. He had a sense of what you were going to put up. You thought he might flee the country. You also thought that he might come after you. And it ended on this very dramatic and again, really good for HBO and really good for your show, ultimately. But at the time, I'm, I'm sure it didn't quite feel... I'm sure you were quite anxious. Yeah, I mean, it was uncomfortable because there was a moment when the FBI said to me, you know, he's back in New York and he's upset with you. And, and you know, I thought that was understandable. But at the same time, you know, the way that this whole series came about was that Bob Durst called me. And so the idea that he, as a triple homicide suspect... In fact, knowing that he was a triple murderer, called a filmmaker to say, hey, I'd like to come out of the shadows here and talk a little bit. I feel misunderstood, would lead you to believe that he probably knew there was a good chance that he was going to get into trouble by participating in a long, thorough documentary. And if you're interested in like a puff piece, then you, you don't call me. Uh -huh. you know, there are other people you could call for that. But uh, he knows that we tend to do investigative work and we tend to work on things for a long time. We worked on this for five years. And I had made a, a film prior to that called All Good Things with Ryan Gosling. Right, a fictionalized version of, of that story. 
And in fact, I think Ryan Gosling's portrayal of Bob was in some ways flattering to Bob. And I think Bob liked the idea that was getting a lot of press and decided that he wanted to, to put himself more into the center of it. And are you going to continue following? Does this documentary, does this series, does it does continue for you sort of as this prosecution winds on? Or are you done with this story? Uh, I mean, I don't think I'm done with it. I don't have a concrete plan, but I do think, you know, we always film what's happening and we try to keep following stories that we're interested in. We did the same thing with Capturing the Freedmans, where that case has continued to be of interest. And, and you know, once you get uh, hooked into a story that you care about and, and you start to care about the people that are associated with it, you stay engaged. So I got very close to the, to the family of the missing girl in, in the case of the Jinx. And they had never had any kind of justice at all. You know, they had not only been mistreated by Bob Durst, who killed their sister, daughter, this lovely girl, but they had been treated very badly by the Durst family, who had sort of done that thing where you sort of trash the victim. And, mm-hmm. and so the McCormick family had had very little relief. And suddenly this series was an opportunity for them to actually, not only to see that somebody was listening to their side of the story, but that Bob Durst would confess to the murder of their dearest person in their family and that he would do it essentially on national television. So, so and, you view, a, and you do, I know people ask you this many times, but you view that audio recording in the bathroom, you, that's a confession in your mind. That's yeah, him I mean, confessing I, I, the murder. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think so. You know, he's in there for quite a while and he goes into fairly great detail about what he did, including right. saying, you know, I, I killed them all, of course. So that to me is... is it's kind of got a Gollum thing going on there, right? Yeah. You know, you're not quite yeah. sure who's talking. So there's going to be more of this, which is good news, I think, for fans of your work, presumably for HBO, if you work with them. And I think, just broadly, it seems to me that we're in a moment of time, and maybe it's random coincidence, but I remember Serial came out uh, and sort of broke open the podcast medium. People love that. Your show came out and people said, wow, if you like Serial, this is like Serial, but it's on HBO and it's equally amazing in a different way. And that was a year ago. And then over over Christmas, Netflix came out with Making of a Murderer, which where there was no buzz about in advance and caught fire. And, and so you have three serialized true crime stories. They're all very different, very different cases, different approaches. Do you think that's just sort of random that people have gravitated to all three of those things? Or do you think there's something deeper going on there? Well, I think that the emergence of this long-form television capability, the ability to have series that are not, you know, that don't need to go on for 12 years and go into syndication in order to be successful, but rather just have to have a really compelling story is critical. And then the ability to just grab that on your computer and watch it in bites is also powerful. So when we were cutting the jinx, the original idea was that we we're going to make a narrative feature, we we're going to make a documentary feature about it, about Bob Durr's story, having already made a dramatic feature about it with actors. And then as we got deeper into it, my collaborators and I were just saying, look, this thing that we're doing during the day is punctuated by nighttime where we go home and we watch Breaking Bad and we go home and we watch, you know, Downton Abbey or we, you know, so suddenly um, there was an opportunity to do something that was serialized. And for us, it was critical because we just couldn't get the story. It was sort of 10 pounds of sugar in a five pound bag. There was no way for us to tell the story of three murders over 30 years and this huge family story. And and to do it in, in a single film. So crime has always been a popular genre. True crime has been a popular genre, goes in and out. Do you think that this is sort of a wave of that and, and people sort of move on from this? Or do you think there's something about the long-form medium and the ability to do serialized stuff that's going to make this a sort of a consistent kind of subject matter? It's also, I guess, relatively inexpensive to produce, right? 
I mean, I didn't find it to be inexpensive <laughs> to produce, but but um, but it you is know, cheaper than than creating CGI starships and yeah, I, I think that's true. And certainly the um, you know you have the ability to look at the stories rather than the way you do with a narrative film, where you you start out often without a true story. And so you've got to make up twists and turns. In this case, you can choose stories that have the most incredible twists and turns. Um, and you see that in now Making a Murderer. And, and I think that the crime thing has a specialness to it because you can lead the audience through this labyrinth and you can have um, those sort of starting and stopping points and you can have twists that are true and also you can build to in, in much the way that you would with a dramatic film. So I, th- I think, you know, you start out with a story that's great because you wouldn't pick it if it weren't great. And then as you go, you can do more with it and, and you can consider all those little twists in the story to be dramatic turns that are pretty compelling for the audience. Have you watched Making of a Murder? I haven't Making finished it, but I'm deep into so it. So you haven't finished it. So yeah, that's don't, interesting. don't tell me what happened. Uh, that's interesting, right? Because it is a show that came out all at once. You could literally spend the entire weekend watching it and get it done in one go. But Serial and your show were released episodically in linear fashion. And in your case, it was a big deal that it was released linearly. Like we talked about at the beginning of the show. Have you thought about sort of if you do this again, you do it something like this again, whether you want to sort of put it out in a weekly fashion or you do look at that Netflix model of here's the entire thing, take it when you want it. In, in whatever chunk you want? I think um, it really depends on the piece. You know, in our case, I think HBO was extraordinarily good at sort of rolling out the information about it and the, you know, in a way that that made it the most fascinating thing it could be. And, and I think had it all come out at once, how would it have worked? You know, Bob Durst was arrested on the day of the sixth episode and the episodes were totally confidential. I mean, that was extraordinary also because I remember we went to the Television Critics Association and people said, oh, well, you know, the TV critics are very tough. You're going to have to show them everything or else they're not going to write about it. And I said, all right, well, uh, that's a shame because we're not going to show them everything. (laughs) And it was too dangerous in our case to show everything up front. Bob would have left the country. And so we had reasons that weren't just related to some, like the dramatic opportunity, but we had reasons that had to do with real life. But also, you know, for me, like one of the reasons why I haven't finished Making a Murder yet is because, number one, I want to respect their process. I want to give them my full attention. And partly because I've been launching this application. You don't have I, 10 I, hours to invest in a Yeah, in a but, but, but that doesn't mean that over time I won't. I, do, right. I, I absolutely will. I, but, and I don't want to leave so much time that I forget what happened in the prior episode because then it takes three times as long to watch a thing. So that's one of the factors that affects things. Is you know When people said, oh, I watched The Jinx this weekend, they were saying I watched five hours of television. You know. Which is either a compliment or it makes you nervous because you think you didn't really watch five hours of TV. You kind of watched it. You kind of went to the bathroom and you kind of had some Yeah, popcorn. I didn't find that. Amazingly enough, I found that people were watching it and were watching it thoroughly and were asking me super detailed questions about it. So that was encouraging. I don't know, encouraging for my kids who I prefer if they don't spend their lives watching television. But it was encouraging for me to see that when you make something and you really put your soul into it, that people really do stand there and do it and watch it and experience it and if they need to rewind it great because now everybody has dvr whatever. Yeah. so it's different it's different than if you had done episodic television 10 years ago 
and you know, tiny percentage of the people had the ability to, to rewind regular television. So let me tell the listeners here about a real-time event. It's the Code Media Conference, uh, February 17th and 18th. If you like this kind of interview, you can see a lot more of it live in real time in Southern California. Code Media is where you're going to find fascinating speakers from the intersecting worlds of media and technology. We have candid, unscripted conversations. Here's an example of one we had did last year when we had uh, Shark Tank star Mark Cuban on stage. I mean, when we started AudioNet in 1995, we started saying bits are bits. The money is still in TV, and that continues to be the case. So is that still true? We're going to find out. Uh, the speakers this year we're going to see include Nigel Eccles from FanDuel, Mike Hopkins who runs Hulu, Shane Smith who runs Vice, uh, many more. You can see the full speaker lineup, and you can register for the event at recode.net slash events. And while we're promoting stuff, I want to say that if you like this show, you're in luck because we're going to keep doing it, but we are going to switch it up in a few weeks, so stay tuned. We'll have more news for you there. Andrew, back to you. Before you were a famous documentarian, you were a famous internet entrepreneur. That's how I knew you oh. when, I, when I first heard about Capturing the Freedom. It was like, the guy who did Movie Phone is now making movies? So explain Movie Phone to me and to the listeners who may have a vague idea of what it was and yeah, how so you Somebody about said it. to me the other day, Movie Phone was the first app, which you, know, you could argue that that was the case. So in um, like 1988 or so, I was trying to go to the movies, and I couldn't get through to my local theater because it, the phone lines at the theater were always busy. And, um, it's 1988. 88, yeah. And by the time I got through, maybe 89, by the time I got through to my local theater, I figured out that the movie had started like 15 minutes ago. And had I gotten through on the first call, I would have been able to go see the movie. Um, and I'd had similar problems just buying tickets to movies. You know, at the time, there was no way to buy tickets in advance. And so I had a couple hours to kill. In the old I days, you of, went to the movie theater and you found out whether or not they had tickets for the show you wanted to go see. Yeah, exactly. So for me, it just seemed like, you know, you had this, I don't know, $5 billion at that time, $10 billion now industry that couldn't figure out how to get my 10 bucks out of my pocket because they couldn't give me the basic information in a way that I could uh, absorb it. And it was something that people had just sort of learned to work around. You know, we would say, hey, was it easy to go to the movies tonight when we were surveying people on movie lines? And they would say, oh, yeah, yeah, it was no problem. I just... You know, I called the theater, but well, well, it was busy, but well, actually I didn't have the phone numbers, so I had to check the newspaper, but I didn't have a newspaper, so I had to go and buy the newspaper, so that took a little while, and then what they were describing was a nightmare, and they described it as if it were fine, and I had a very um, uh, similar experience recently, you know, and in, in the movie phone case, we had come up with a, a sort of telephonic way of doing it. So movie phone started as a telephone service. That yeah, was a 777 a, film, right? Yeah, started out as a, as So as again, the, for some of numbers. our younger listeners, you would call, instead of right, you'd call buying seven, a newspaper, you'd call you would, 777 film on your telephone. It'd be a regular local call and you'd put in the first three letters of the movie or eventually you would say, you this iconic voice. Can you do the voice? It wasn't your voice. It was yeah, it was not mine, but it, he would say, hello and welcome to movie phone brought to you by that kind of thing. And um, so people would, would navigate this, this number phone and you'd navigate this little sort of at the time what was like kind of a voicemail system, but an interactive system that would give you just the information that you needed. And frankly, it was it was not much more difficult because it was such a simple function than if you did it with an app. Like with, there's a movie phone app now. Right. And, but anyway, we we also allowed people to buy tickets, so you'd get showtimes, you'd be able to buy tickets, and then eventually. I think we were the first people ever to sell tickets on the internet. So in addition to being able to buy Did you have in a advance, technology background? How did you decide, oh, this is a thing I want to build? You know, I, I knew something about technology, but I wasn't a coder. And, and I had um, a couple of partners, one of whom was a very good coder, and we started to develop And this. you guys built this before the internet wave, right? This was originally a phone service. Yeah, so in 88, we built it. And then by 92, we were selling tickets on the internet, and we were giving showtimes on the internet. And that was very early. That was probably a couple of years, I think, before even Ticketmaster started selling tickets on the internet. 
Um, so we were the first people to build a credit card interface that was totally automated. In other words, we were sending credit card numbers over phone lines without having to have a person check your credit card and all that kind of stuff. Again, in a world where you can summon a car from your phone, this seems like no big deal. Of course, you can buy your ticket for tomorrow's movie on your phone. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, this is a big deal. Eventually, you build this thing up, you sell it to AOL. Yeah, so we, so we actually, in, in, in 1999, we were approached by a whole bunch of companies at the same time. And, uh, and I, I was talking to my friend who was an investment banker, and he said, what's going on? And I said, oh, well, you know, we heard from AOL and they want to talk about doing some kind of strategic partnership. And then we heard from Yahoo and they want to talk about doing some kind of ticketing deal. And, and my friend said to me, oh, you're selling your company. And I said, no, 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 you didn't hear what I said. We're, we're just having these strategic conversations. He said, listen, when a $200 billion company is talking to a little company, that's you selling your company. That feeling you're having right now, that's the feeling that you have when you're selling your company. And he was right. And it was sort of the appropriate time. And, and so in 1999, we sold the company. So $400 to million, dollars, that cash, stock, some combination? A little more than that. And we did it in, uh, and it was, a, it was a stock deal, but it was... We didn't have a... But real money. So so presumably you made real money there. Usually when that happens, you say, I'm a successful internet entrepreneur and either I'm going to be that for the rest of my life, going to keep doing that, or maybe I'm going to retire and, I don't know, invest in Hawaiian islands. Uh, what was your thought after you sold the company? You know, my, there were people that said to me, oh, well, now you should, you know, because you can, you know, you should now go be the head of an internet company. And at the time, you know, I had been doing that for a long time, and it was it was extremely fun, and it was a great ride. But it was time for me to do something else. And I had been a theater director at Princeton, and I had done other other stuff that was artistic. I've done music and things like that. So, and I had made some films before that that were short films. So I decided that I wanted to make a documentary. So you'd had a film at you're like, all right, now I have the opportunity to go do this because I yeah. And I had a film in 1988, right when it, right before I started Movie Phone, I had a film at Sundance. And so I was sort of always creatively driven also. But, you know, my, my family was like that. My dad was a very successful business person, is still. And my mom was a movie critic for Time Magazine, actually. And so I always had both of those things, I think, in my brain. And your brother is also a documentary maker. Yeah, was yeah. he doing that at the same time, or did he do it after you or yeah, before no, I have you? No, I have two brothers who are both filmmakers and, and one brother who's not a filmmaker, my brother Eugene has made a lot of great documentaries, and of course, all that came long after I, you know, set the. So uh, you started the direction for the family. And I said, "Oh, I'm we kidding, can do I'm this. kidding, I'm yeah. kidding." No, but I mean, we both we both like filmmaking, and then my brother Nick made um, some terrific stuff, but but made the the film Arbitrage with Richard Gere about two years ago. So was your thought after you sell the company in 99, I'm trying to figure out the timeline, but basically was your thought, oh, I'm going to go make a movie because I can make a movie and then eventually I'm going to figure something else out. Obviously since then you've pretty much devoted yourself to filmmaking. Was that the plan? You know, I, I never have had a plan. I just try to be engaged and, and work hard. And, and so I always sort of feel like I just got to be open to whatever the next thing is and the next thing sort of defines itself. You know, if you stay engaged, you see things that you want to work on. So for me, that's always been, you we, know. We talked earlier about sort of the notion of being able to do this episodic stuff and do TV shows where you can make a, a six-hour, five-hour uh, movie. Do you think you'll keep working in that format, or do you want to go back and make sort of more Well, you know, at the films? moment, I mean, we'll see what happens with the with the Durst story. That's certainly something that we want to, you know, continue to think about. But 
but at the moment I'm spending all my time on, on Nomi and that, so that's actually been really a, it's been a fun break, but it's also just, it's very familiar to me because it's much more like the work we did with, with movie. Fun. So let's talk about that. You had an internet company, made movies, made documentaries. Now you're, you've got an app, um, you and I assume you you've, you've got help here. I mean, Bessemer, yeah, we have other about, investors. Yeah, we have, there are actually about 20 people that are working in the company uh-huh. right now. And, um, it's called Nomi, K-N-O-W-M-E. And this actually weirdly came out of my experience making the Jinx. So I was in the middle of shooting the Jinx, and we, I had in, interviewed something like 100 people. And once you get into that mode, you're really struck by how powerfully people are driven to tell you their story. And I'd go home after an interview, and somebody would call me at home to say, oh, there's something else I forgot to tell you. So people are so powerfully motivated to tell you things about themselves and to tell you, you know, whether it's a story of what happened to them this morning at the market yep. or what happened. Because no one asked them. Yeah. Well, that's partly true. And the feeling of telling your story is a cathartic, powerful feeling. And it's something that we all want. So it struck me that in mobile, there was no easy way to do that. There are certainly ways to tell stories in mobile, but I sort of saw them breaking down into two camps. There's the sort of Snapchat world where, you know, you can sort of talk into your phone and wave it around and say, hey, I'm at the concert right now. So this is first person, present tense, and it's a very limited method, right? You get 10 seconds to say- Here I am, this is what I see. Exactly. Done. And so it's incredibly easy. It doesn't require a lot of technical knowledge, obviously, but it also doesn't give you very much in terms of the richness of your ability to express yourself. On the other side of the spectrum, you have things like uh, Final Cut or iMovie, which are really fundamentally pro tools. You right. know, they're not things that the average it's the average person very doesn't complicated say. To figure that stuff yeah. out. They don't say, oh, I'm going to jump on my editing app and just you know, quickly throw something out. You know, it becomes a project. And that idea that you need to spend time on it and that that's linked to the, the richer expression, the ability to edit something, the ability to put music on it, the ability to, to use images from your phone and use video and all that stuff. That's something that is sort of still in the province of professionals. So my feeling was that there was something in the middle. So it's one thing to go, oh, it'd be cool if there was an app like that. Another thing to say, I'm going to put time and money to build this thing. What prompted you to actually go ahead and create an app? And by the way, we're in a world, it seems like 1999, right, where there's a lot of apps now. Just building an app doesn't really prove anything, right? Like you built an app, you're now one of millions of apps. Yeah, sure. That's true. I mean, I, I thought that because we were starting with something that was a basic human need, we had something that was not just going to be an app. You know, you never know. But I think that people are really fundamentally driven to do sort of a handful of things. You know, they're fundamentally driven to to order food. And therefore, an app for ordering food is going to be good. They're fundamentally driven to see naked people. They want to do that. Therefore, they're going to find a million apps that are going to let them see naked people. Um, they want to be able to pass notes to each other. So there's Snapchat. They want to be able to... In this case, the basic desire to share your story or to share multiple stories wasn't getting served. So we basically decided that the whole process of creating and editing a video was broken and that we needed to rethink that process from the standpoint of, you know, from my standpoint as as a sort of combination storyteller and entrepreneur, it was fairly natural to try to come up with a a much, much simpler way of doing that. And, and I remember in movie phone days, we used to say, if you're trying to come up with a consumer application and you want the average person to be able to use it, it can be no more complicated than a 1950s television remote control. It's got to have an on-off, it's got to have a mute button, and a channel up, channel down. And if you put more than that into it, you're probably screwed. And that's basically what you built. I was playing with it this morning. It's, it's quite intuitive. You build the app, 
you launch the app, um, you're in a position where because you're a famous person, you've made a, a famous documentary, it got some attention a couple of weeks ago. Now it seems like the real hard part, which is actually getting distribution, getting real attention, getting downloads. How's that going? And what are you learning about that process? Um, well, we've had, I mean, we've had a lot of downloads and we've had a lot of enthusiasm. We're having fun in the office now because we're like watching people making nomies from, you know, somebody made one in Pakistan yesterday that was kind of amazing. You know, there's some small village in Pakistan where somebody has an iPhone and they've made this great little story about what's happening around them. Or there was a woman from the Netherlands who made something yesterday. There was a little kid who's Dutch who made this beautiful little piece where she kind of talked about herself and she made a little animated story. But essentially what's so simple about it, I think, is that when you open the app, it gives you kind of a front-facing camera and it gives you all your media right there. So you can touch and hold any image on your phone. You can touch a photograph and you can speak over it and say, this is what I did this morning and this is what I did this afternoon. And you can show pictures of, uh, you know, of your kids from the vacation or you can show pictures of you know, this basketball game you just left with your, you know, with your boyfriend or whatever. So it, it enables you to talk over pictures, videos, and then if you want to add music to that, you can add music instantly. If you want to add live camera images, you can do that very quickly, and, and, and it all happens. What's your sense of how it's working? I mean, I assume, again, you've got professional investors working with you. They've been in this business before. They know how this works. They're saying, look, this is we want to get a big push and a big pop and climb the charts right away, or actually this is going to linger around for a while. We're going to have a slow build. What's you your know, sense I think of everybody how likes it. I mean, we've had, a, we had a lot of um, enthusiasm and a lot of people downloading it from a lot of different walks of life, and I think everybody likes that. But at the same time, you don't want to get distracted by that because it is a long haul. You want to make sure that people are finding the right ways to use this tool, you know, and and that it can be really fun. You know, this morning I saw the comedian Jeff Ross was uh, very close to Abe Vigoda. And uh, when Abe Vigoda died, Jeff made a little know me about Abe Vigoda, which is beautiful. You know, you can pull in images from the internet and there's a picture of Jeff and Abe Vigoda when Jeff was a young comic and how Abe was nice to him. And it's a very emotional little bit and it's, you know, a minute long, but it's something that uh, I don't want to miss saying that the key to it is time compression, right? That filmmakers are all in the business of time compression. If you watch my three days of interview with Bob Durst, you will be exhausted and want to die. And he'll certainly provide the opportunity for you to do that if you choose. Because it's boring, right? Because even the most interesting, fascinating, compelling person, nobody can listen to him for three days. Nope. Nobody can listen to him for four minutes, probably. And so ultimately what filmmakers are all about is taking out the bad stuff and putting all the good, interesting stuff in one place. And because Nomi lets you edit as you go, because I'm just touching the images that I care about, and then when I'm done, I can eliminate segments and I can do it all very easily, it enables you to do a kind of time compression that nothing else out there does. You know, that's not something that you can do with Snapchat. It's not something you can do with Instagram. Does launching an app in 2016 give you sort of more perspective on, on how phenomenal your success was with, with movie phone? Or does it feel, I mean, what's, what's, how do you compare the two eras? Wow. I, I mean, I think, you know, it's very different because with movie phone, there was only really offline advertising, you know, like advertising that there was this new phone service or this new internet service. You know, of you the people using the internet, in they were, yeah, I mean, of the people using the internet, a hell of a lot of them were already using movie phone. Just the universe wasn't that big. Right. And so, you know, when you look at the modern world, people, if I said, oh, well, this is great, we're going to take out ads in the paper to tell people to use Nomi, people would say, oh, okay, <laughs> that's great. That guy's crazy. The guy that was on the radio. Let's cash his check really quickly. Right. 
so that's a big thing. Now, the, the good news is that, you know, we launched Nomi, you know, a few days ago and instantly there were people in Pakistan using it. That's incredible, yeah. you know, but by the same token, it doesn't mean that, you know, because there's so much noise, you still got to find a way to get the signal through. And that means you got to be smart about messaging. You got to be smart about saying what it does, you know, and that's a real process. You know, we, we were agonizing over, you know, do we want to say that we're the easiest way to make a video on your phone using all your photos and video, you know, or do you want to say this is how you say more with video or, you know, it's, it's just there's a greater emphasis on explaining yourself more clearly because that positioning, this is a subject of a great book called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, which was one of the great marketing books. Um, it's all about like how do you fit into the customer's brain? How do you fit into the daily lives of the people that want to use what you're what you're offering? What's harder, making a successful app or interviewing a, a murderer and making a documentary about it? It's all the same cajoling. It's all the same little <laughs> tiny bits leading towards something good. You know, hopefully you want to do the right thing. All right. Hopefully this will be a success for you as well. Don't kill anyone. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. And thanks to you guys for listening. If you like this, there's plenty more. Uh, you can hear about it all at recode.net slash decode. So we get the old episodes, we get the new episodes. We'll also have messaging about the new show for you. You should be listening to that. If you're listening to this, you probably also know that Recode Decode is twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And now we've got a new show. It's called Too Embarrassed to Ask, hosted by Kara Swisher and Lauren Good. Every Friday, Kara and Lauren answer your tech questions and review the latest gadgets. Check it out at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. Kara is back on Monday. I'll be back here next week with another great guest. See you then. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.